You remember when you were in, in high school and early college when love was like the most magnetic, amazing thing in the world. Your emotions were pumping. Infatuation was clear. That guy was cute and he liked you and you couldn't talk because you went dry mouthed and you went, ah! or, or if you were the guy, you were all suave and confident on the field. And then she walks up and says hi. And you're like, ah. you know, that kind of feelings that you got. I, I can remember that feeling for me. I was in the summer. I was hanging out with a friend at a at a, at a, at a couple friends at a house, uh, one of my friends' house, and we got this phone call, and we were having this conversation with these two girls, and um, my friend Ray liked one of the girls, and uh, these two girls were talking to him, and I wasn't in on the conversation, but at the end of it, he said, hey, hey, man, the, one of the girls told me that she, she likes you, and I'm like, really? This was like new to me. That experience had never happened before. I was always told, get lost. But the reality was this one. It's like, no way. And so I started getting excited about this. And so, you know, kind of trying my best to be kind and, and that, but emotions are overcoming. And so eventually I ask her to win her formal and she says, yes. And I'm like, really? And so we, we, we wind up doing that. And I'm thinking, this girl really does like me. This is awesome. So when all that's over, and one day I'm in the backyard, and she's smoking a cigarette, and I'm going, I don't smoke. I don't like people who smoke. Everything in me in the infatuation phase and all this stuff decides, yeah, I could compromise that. And I start compromising my morals here and there because I like this girl, and all this is moving, and I'm thinking, this is great. I'm going to have a girlfriend. I need to ask her out. This is gonna be, and things just never quite lined up. And eventually, by the end of that year, she finally had the guts to tell us that, look, I like your friend Ray, just like my friend liked Ray. I don't like you. This has all been not what you think it is. And basically, she liked the attention but didn't want to do anything with the relationship. And I'm thinking, this stinks. This is a horrible beginning point for infatuation and, and what I think love is. But the reality is, is that that's not an unlikely story for many of us in this room. I mean, how often have you entertained a relationship that you thought was love or you thought was even a liking, and really it was that person enjoying something about you? They were in love with you as long as they received good feelings from you. They were more in love with what they were enjoying than they were about who you were. And in fact, some of you got married and wound up with some divorces that were situated because somebody in your life fell out of love with you. And love, then, in our culture has become such an emotional thing. It's become a, a feeling thing that, that ebbs and flows so you can not feel love anymore, and you can have love, and lots of love, and you can be head over heels in love. And then we get to a very popular and famous verse in the Bible, and all of this doesn't make any sense. And I'm speaking, yes, of that popular verse that's held up at every football stadium and, and everywhere you can possibly think of, John 3, 16. We're going to examine that verse today, and we're going to realize, you know what? Maybe our definitions of love and some of our other definitions aren't helping us to understand this verse, especially in its context. So why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to open up to John chapter 3, beginning of verse 16. We're going to look through verse 21. And so... Go ahead and grab that, if you will, and we're going we're gonna to get going there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we provide Bibles in the seats. You can grab one of those and pull it out, page 888, and you can be right here with us in these verses. Now, the background of this is a man named Nicodemus, who is a high, highly intelligent man. He's probably memorized 
first five books of the Bible. He's a Pharisee, so he's very godly and religious, very conservative. He is also a leader in the Sanhedrin. He's kind of like the high mucky muck of, the, of, of politics in their land. He's, he's got power. He's probably got a family. He's definitely got money. This guy's got everything you can imagine about what you need for a good life. And he's come to Jesus at night, kind of hiding around. And Jesus basically tells him, look, you're not going to even see heaven. You're not even going to enjoy the kingdom of God if you don't have a radical alteration of everything that you are. If, you don't be, if you're not transformed, reborn, then you're not going to find anything. How does that happen? How do we do that? He says, look up at the Son of God when he's lifted up and trust in him and you will have eternal life. And that's where he kind of, we've ended it. And so now we suddenly dive into this very famous verse. So let's look at it. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so Jesus says a lot more than just John 3.16. He gives us a lot, a lot more context after the verse. And we end up with some interesting things, especially if you read it in our cultural setting. Think about it for a second. If love is an emotional thing, this is how we should read this. For God so loved the world. Oh, he had such great emotions and, and felt so good about the world that he gave his own son. Oh, so whoever would have a leap of faith in God would, wouldn't, wouldn't. Now, how do I define perish in our modern culture? Because let's be honest, that word isn't talked about right now anymore. No, no, no. Everybody has eternal life, right? In fact, when I think about it, we, we, we see that this is talking about something very specific. And yet, if you've ever been to a funeral, what do you find out? Somebody, it doesn't matter who it is, the pastor or somebody in the family will stand up and inevitably tell you, so-and-so has gone on to a better place. How many of you have heard that at a funeral that you've been at? Throw your hand up. It's pretty much unanimous in the church. I don't know anybody who hasn't heard at whatever funeral they've gone to, so-and-so is in a better place. We know they were suffering, but it's better for them now. What a cultural assumption. Because Jesus just jumped all over that. See, in America, the default setting for humanity seems to be going to heaven. And so yet, what we see is that God was showing, it says that God showed his unconditional love for us through a great sacrifice. He gave his son, lifted up on a cross, that if we would believe in him, we could have eternal life. And so he says some very interesting things. And yet, this brings some very... Troubling questions, let's be honest. If you just said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that, whatever, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. People hear, yeah, yeah, God loves, God loves everybody. There's nobody God doesn't love. And I, and I would agree with that. It's saying God loved the world, but look how much he loves him. He loves him so much. That's actually not what it's saying. 
You'll look down, some of you in your footnotes, it'll actually give you another translation. I think it's the better translation. It says, for this is how God loved the world. God loved the world, and this is how he showed his love for the world. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he sent his son so that we who would believe in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And so there's a question here. You have this word saved. It says, whoever would, you know, this, it goes on. God not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. Saved. Why does the world need saving if God loves everybody? Why, if God loves the world and is willing to give his son, what's this perishing part? It sticks out like a sore thumb. What's going on here? And that's where the Bible seems to stand in contradiction to everything our culture has talked about. We've, we've discussed over the last couple of weeks, but it's clearly that there's a problem that humanity's default position is to perish, not to go to heaven. Now, the reality is that many of us have sat in funerals and been lied to by people. I think one of the most vexing situations for me is to know that some of my own family members didn't know Jesus at all. And we were told very clearly, he's fine, he's in heaven. And then what does this mean? Why does God have to love the world to send his son? Why does Jesus have to die if it doesn't really matter? Everybody's already got eternal life. You don't need to believe in something, have a blind leap of faith in something. There's no problem, but the problem's real. Jesus indicates that we are in danger of perishing in what is known as hell. And he starts with this terminology of perishing. It means to be destroyed. To have, when, you're, when your company is destroyed, it falls apart. It's got no money. It's just, it's basically broken. When the life is destroyed or perishing or perished, it's broken. It's broken down. It's not living anymore. And he says, look, I don't want you to end up perishing in hell, which Jesus clearly believed in. But so God has sent me on a mission. God has sent me here to do something. And the, day, the situation is we know it's default because two weeks ago we examined the human condition. We, we saw that I mean, modern America believes that humanity is innately good and we just make some mistakes here and there. But that's a new concept. Instead, what we see is Jesus wasn't even willing to trust humanity. Because he knew it was in them. He knew there was this twist to evil called sin. We liked it. We enjoyed it. We wanted it. We went towards it. And so he said, no, I'm not going to trust you. In fact... Even if you're really good, you still need a radical transformation where your entire being, your identity, your heart, who you are, is made new. And so Jesus levels it all the way down. He says, and here's why, because there's a justice coming and all of humanity is deserving of perishing. And you know what? We as Americans, we don't like that. We think God has to be tolerant. God is loving, which means he accepts everybody right where they are. He's the grandpa in the sky who sees us do some things. He goes, kids will be kids. Don't do that again. Even to the point where some of us believe that we could do all kinds of evil. All we got to simply do is go, God, I'm sorry. And he goes, it's okay. And he lets you into heaven. As if an apology is all God's ever been looking for. But it's not. If all apology was all God's looking for, he didn't need to give anything let alone his son. I don't know about you. I'm not willing to give up. I have three boys. I'm not even willing to give up any of those for you guys. Not being selfish. I'm being human. But God, in his great love for us, was willing to sacrifice his son. Why? Because of a great danger. An imminent, horrible danger that we understand. You see, 
when you erase hell, as much of our culture has, you lose a lot of things. First of all, you lose God's justice. God is loving. He's not just. You lose that he's the king. And we think of him only as the father and this cuddly old man instead of this king who sits on his throne adjudicating every evil act. And so you know what I found Christians doing more and more as time goes on and we lose more track of hell is they go, what about all the evil in the world? I'm suffering and this is wrong. I shouldn't be suffering. And But what about those horrible tyrants over there? What about those people who are persecuting? What about ISIS? This, this is just a messed up world. Yeah. And God's going to deal with every single evil on a day of justice, and he's going to bring about all of that justice perfectly. And that's, what we, that's what hell is, the perfect justice being mitigated to our evil. And what's crazy is as we drop hell, what happens is we get all kinds of odd behaviors. Now, I want to warn, as we talk about this briefly, this is not something to get excited about. Hell is not fun. And I was a youth pastor once. I was the guy who was like, I turned up all the temperature in the room of the youth building and I turned off all the lights and then I recorded myself screaming and all these horrible things. And I, and I just scared the kids to death. And it was like, they all remember it and some of them hate me for it and some of them love me for it. But the bottom line is, hell is not supposed to be something that's like fun, you know? And I'm like, let's, how do we make hell fun? It's not fun. This is the destiny of people that you and I love. This is a destiny of little babies that have been born this way week and are going to live to 80. Unless somebody invades their life, unless something happens, unless a rescue operation is brought out. Guys, there are people who just died in the hospital while we're having church that entered into a Christless eternity. That should sober us as we talk about this thought. Look, people go, what kind of person would ever invent this? That's why I think people don't invent it. People don't invent this concept. It is something that comes out of the pages of Scripture in which we see that God is dealing with evil, page after page after page. And if we ignore this, there is no gospel. There is no need for a sacrifice. John 3.16 makes no sense. God just loves. All we have to do is God so loved the world. Period. Done. End of sentence. But no. So much more. So what is this thing? Because let's face it, we're doing cave quest, okay? Beautiful cave here. And there's been some mockery out there that we as Christians, we believe that hell is actually this location in the center of the earth, maybe a giant cavernous cave where fire is constantly burning. And little red devils are running around poking people. (laughs) That's what we think because of medieval pictures and all these middle ages and thoughts that is not hell so if you think that's what we think or if you think that's what christians think and you're a christian just set that aside for a minute and give dante back his book and let's look at the focus of what the bible seems to indicate the bible does use fire the bible does talk about this as being the location where the devil and the demons end up going for their punishment and it uses terminology of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth All of these are imagery to get you to understand this is not a place anyone wants to go, period. We all agreed on that one. It's not a place we want anyone to go, no matter who they are or what they've done. It is a horrendous place. The first time it's actually mentioned is actually very early in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. 
Um, not directly, but it sets the stage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God is instructing Adam, who has just been created and set in the, in the garden. He tells him, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, here's what's interesting about the story. As you will continue on reading, you know God's threatened to kill Adam if he ever eats of this fruit. Along comes Eve and Adam. Serpent's like, hey, check this fruit out. It's really good. God didn't really say it's bad. He's like, oh, okay. We'll eat it. Here you go. Want some? They both eat it, and they don't die. But it says, in the day that you eat it. And, and you back off, and you're like, what happened here? They're still alive. They have kids. We're all their progeny. Something happened. Either God lied or something else happened. What we know is something else did happen. They died. But it was a spiritual death. Their soul became hardened to God. In fact, you see that throughout the rest of the pages. Humanity constantly struggles to take control of their own spiritual and moral lives. And page after page after page is God instructing humanity how to live, us rebelling against God and judgment coming. Page after page after page. You want to look for one pattern in the Bible? That's the pattern. Humanity is instructed by God. We give God the finger. God brings about judgment. And then maybe we repent. That is it. In all its different forms, with law and king and prophets and music and you name it, same pattern. And Jesus says the pattern's no different here. Except that God's out to do something. There is this place of death that has occurred in our hearts where we are distanced from God and therefore distanced from each other. We're angry, we long for sin and to create morals in our own ways. And so then we realize that no wonder the end of the book calls it the second death. The death in Hades, the locations in the book of Revelation were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the locations where the dead are, are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he's been thrown, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is after a judgment seat. This is after all of their works have been adjudicated. This is not just random. Um, John! Nope. Throw him in! That's not how this is working. There's far more complexity here. This is a simple verse just to remind us this is a second death. I don't know about you, but there are some fates they say that are worse than death. Solitary confinement's been considered one of those. In which you sit in the midst of just yourself. You're confined to yourself, your fears, the darkness, depression is considered a, is often been considered a fate worse than death. It's some of the things that lead people to suicide. That's spiritual death. It's a darkness within the soul that doesn't lift nor leave. And so the most frightening verse about hell are not fire to me or anything else. It's what, it's what Paul actually writes. He says, these people will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's the idea of their lives being ground down away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. One of the theologians have put it this way, that for those who, are, those who will wind up in hell, this is the most heaven they will ever have. For those who end up in heaven, this is the most hell you'll ever have. Because what you have here is the presence of the Lord is not there, meaning that his direct love, mercy, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, this is not found in hell. You think ACDC's right and we're all going to go have fun in hell and have a party. You're wrong. That's not what hell is. Hell is probably loneliness, anger, frustration, bitterness, embitteredness, continuing to grow and grow and grow as we become disintegrated even in our own identities. It's a horrific thought. I don't even want to go any further. 
But this is what Jesus says, and hear it now, that God loved the world, so he gave his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so he offers a solution, because according to Ezekiel, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He's not happy that anyone would go there. So his solution was to send an operation where Jesus came to save us from this conviction and sentence. And so Jesus steps in to save us, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to make the sentence happen. He came that the world might be saved through him. Saved from this fate. Saved from this danger. The gospel is destroyed if we don't remember that this is the default fate of humanity that is mired in sin. And so in this solution, Jesus is very clearly talking about that he has come to save us from. Well, how in the world is he going to save us from that fate? What is he going to do? And it's kind of opened up to the rest of the book of John, but one simple verse made by Paul clarifies it quickly. He says, Christ bought us back, redeemed us, purchased us from the curse of the law. The law, which is God's rule and God's way of life, has set upon us a it's death. We're going to die spiritually and physically because we've broken it. Hey, it's no different in physics. You, you know, if you jump off a building, a very high building, and gravity grabs hold of you, the curse of gravity is going to take you over very soon. Amen? Because you're going to meet the force of gravity as, the, uh, as Newton's laws interact with you and equal and opposite reactions occur and bad things all happen. Look, the laws of physics are just as violent as the, as the laws of spiritual nature. They're as real as well. And so he says that the law became a curse, became a curse for us, but Jesus became a curse on our behalf. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so there on the cross, in a very real sense, Jesus bore our hell. He took this punishment, this perishing on himself, swallowed it whole, carried it on himself so that when you look to him and trust in his work, he takes hell from you and gives you his righteousness and you make an exchange. That's the power of what's going on here and is lost if we don't realize the destiny. Not fun to think about, but it's essential. And this is important because you know what, guys? There's a lot going on in here as Jesus steps in and takes this. There's a lot that applies to Christians and non-Christians alike. First of all, Jesus wants to say, well, who are these people that step into the light? Why in the world would they come? He goes into this light conversation shortly after. Here in our cave quest adventures, what we've been doing is looking at the light. Caves are dark. You have to bring the light in. And so Jesus is the light that shined into the darkness is what these kids have been learning. And so what does Jesus bring as the light? In this case, Jesus brings, and we didn't use this one, but Jesus brings exposure. He brings the truth. Notice how this goes on. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the sentence, the judgment, or the verdict. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. We'll go skip down to verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What's hard about this verse is it makes it sound like all of us really good people, what we did is we go, oh, look, 
The light is shining. Jesus has come. We'll walk into the light because, hey, Jesus, look how good we are. We've done everything for you. That's what that sounds like it just said, doesn't it? That's not actually what's going on. He says this, verse 21. Look at it again. But whoever does what is true, another way of translating this is whoever practices the truth steps into the light. What is this from? Actually, John, in another place, uses this exact same phrase in his epistle. He says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, let me translate that. If we say we're Christians, but we actually live out in sin all the time, and we use, our, we use Jesus' cross as an excuse, well, I can do whatever I want. Jesus has died for me. He says, then we lie and do not practice the truth. And his point is, there's a lack of integrity. There's a lack of connection between the way of living and what you believe about yourself. And what John is saying is those who live in integrity, who understand who they are, step into the light. And the reason why is because they know they need, the only way to do good is to do it in God. Look again at what he says. So that it may be clearly seen that this person's works have been carried out in God, meaning not in themselves. The only way to do good, they know, is to be walking with God. In other words, those who step into the light know they need God. They already know their life's a mess. They know their destiny is hell. As one of my friend's missionary friend would say, when you meet Christians on the field, he'd say, when, is, when was it that you came to understand that you were a sinner destined for hell? And if they could answer that question, he knew they had been saved. Because the first move is to understand your desperate need for God, that you can't do anything good apart from God, that you must be in God. And so when the light shines, you come to God because you know you need to walk in him. Which means something very important, that Christians, we've got to understand, none of us deserve the name. Every single person in heaven deserves hell, save one, and only one in heaven has ever suffered it, namely Jesus. Every single person in the church is deserving of hell, save the Savior who made the church, who suffered it. That equalizes everyone in the room. None of us are better or worse. We all must come to the light understanding we stand before God naked and bare with nothing to defend ourselves. You know, I can tell you that and some of you begin to have a process that goes off in your head. Yeah, I know he gave me his life and I deserve hell. And so you, you, you understand Jesus forgave you, but you dare not forgive yourself. And maybe you're into like grabbing a cat of nine tails and sitting there going, whack, 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 smacking yourself around. Not literally. I hope not. If you are, there are people you can talk to. Please go get an appointment. But the reality is that some of you do it in your head all day long. You sinned again, and what you do is you dare not go near God because I'm horrible, and I don't deserve this anymore, and I'm this. And you beat yourself up from your guilt. And you punish and beat yourself down because somehow you forgot that this was a gift and not a paycheck. You didn't earn what God gave. He gave it to you because he loved you. 
See, it doesn't change what God is doing from how we respond. God already knew you had sinned. God already understood you were a mess. He, he bought you on purpose because you are already under a curse. There's no need to continue to walk around cursing yourself more. No, you need to walk in the freedom of forgiveness that God has given you. This isn't a simple, God, forgive me, I'm good. No, this is a realization that Jesus suffered it for you. And the only reason you can stand before God is he gave you everything you need to stand before him. What an amazing gift. And you know what? The longer you walk in your faith, the greater your sin will feel, but the greater the cross will loom. The bigger his grace grows. You know what happens to a church that captures the reality that you've been saved from hell? Even though every day you live, you know you deserve it more. It burns in you for three things. One, it ignites worship. It becomes a place where it doesn't matter if it's little kids on stage going, the light, the light. You're out there in the stage going, I got to learn these because I got to do this for Jesus because he saved me from hell. It ignites your music. It shoots your prayer life into the stratosphere. It engages you because you've been saved from the greatest, most horrific event that humanity will ever suffer. And he suffered it for you. It will ignite your evangelism because you will realize those around you have this fate and you will ignore the reality that people are coming to Jesus because, oh, I've just had a bad day. You know why it's hard to get people to come to Jesus? Because they've forgotten the fate. And so we have to wait around until they feel it through a horrible event in their life before they're ready to listen. I don't think that's going to change. But the reality is for us Christians, we weren't saved from a bad marriage. We weren't saved from a difficult situation with our children. We weren't saved from a bad economic situation. You know what we were saved from? The punishment of our own sins. And that means, guys, it gives us compassion to love others, not superiority, and it engages us to get out there to preach the gospel to other people. That's what motivates and moves. And it shouldn't allow you to condemn yourself but to walk with God. And so while I, don't, while I, I, I want to forget about hell, Jesus won't let us. He tells us again that, hey, God loved this world to save it from this. But there's another problem that arises then that Jesus points out. There's a new problem. People don't, be, don't come because they don't want to be exposed to the light. You know what's cool about this little clicker I've got? It has a laser pointer. Isn't that cool? We could sing this, people don't come because they don't want. But anyway, what's cool about a laser pointer is that if you're falling asleep, this is just intense light. I can just point you out. Isn't that awesome? Like, you, you're, you're not, you're, that's wrong. Hey, why aren't you taking notes? Come on. That was a really good joke. Laugh, come on. You know, that's the idea, right? But nobody wants to come to church if the pastor's up there with the laser pointer using it on them. It's a great way to shrink attendance and people are like, that guy's like convicting in ways you don't want to know. It's like the, the reality is that we don't like when we're pointed out. And yet this light has shone into the darkness, Jesus says, and people run. Whoever believes in him, he says, is not condemned. So Christians, you're not condemned. You're free. It's okay. But what, whoever does not believe is all condemned already. That judgment's already there because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world on people of the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works, his evil works, would be shown off and exposed. In other words, they love the nightlife. They love to boogie. You know, that's what's going on. They want the nightlife, and they're not going to bring the nightlife into the day. And really, honestly, the reason I bring that up is that's how, why darkness and light was chosen by the ancients. What was done under the cloak of night and the darkness was typically evil, and they didn't want anybody to see it. Secret, hidden away. You hide things in the darkness. Light exposes and shows things off and makes it clear. And so Jesus says, look, these people want to keep their things in the dark. Today, what we do is we just say, hey, what's in the dark is light. So we're all good. Isaiah said, woe to those people who make evil good and good evil and make darkness light and light darkness. That's another danger that we don't even want to mess with. But the bottom line here is that Jesus says, when God shows the light in through Jesus, people kind of back away and they go, I don't really want to step out there and show off my bad stuff. And people balk, they back away. You see, people are, are, are less likely not to come to Jesus because of, of argument. I mean, I love apologetics, and I believe that it's helpful, but most of the time, people have a reason they don't come to Jesus, and it's because they don't want to be considered wrong. They don't want to accept that they would be going to hell. They don't want to think of themselves as sinners. They actually don't want to view what they're doing as wrong. And because of that reality, they keep away from the light, which would show them off as evil. And so we make our arguments. My friend Stephen had a friend in the military when he was working in the military in Alamogordo. This guy was going to be sent off to South Korea. And man, you got the move to South Korea. It was party central because there's all kinds of wicked things that happens in South Korea and it's all aimed at the United States military. And so this guy who was going to the church and, and Stephen had been ministering to him, suddenly out of nowhere starts having some conversations and starts saying, um, hey, you know, I don't know about this Paul thing or this Jesus thing. He starts arguing all these weird, sudden theological problems. And Stephen works with him for like two weeks until finally he finds out he's going to South Korea. He says, listen, I know you really don't care about these theological issues. You're just trying to put your Christianity on the side so you can go do whatever you want in South Korea, huh? Like I said, yeah, pretty much. The reality is many of us stay away from the faith of Christianity, stay away from truth because there's something we want to hold on to. There's something we want to affirm as good that God says isn't. There's something that we want to stand strong with, maybe some intellectual arrogance because, hey, science is smart and I want to hold on to that. Or, hey, you know what? We've got this figured out over here and the Bible's dumb about that. Or you name it. But there's all kinds of reasons because we don't want to be exposed. Do we, husbands? Say, what? What are you talking about? Our wives are great at exposing our sins. I mean, for me anyway, she, my, when, we were youngly, when we were just in the beginning of our marriage, I can remember I used to use my, I tried to use my intellect as a, wield it as a weapon to keep my insecurities down. And so I, somebody said something wrong, I'd jump on it, boom, and then lay it straight and write out every fifth century person who said it or whatever. And eventually my wife's like, it's just ugly when you do that kind of stuff. You're being self-righteous and smug and arrogant know-it-all. People don't like that. And you're sitting there just going like, well, well, you do this. You know, you want to shine the light right back on them. Here's a mirror. Because we don't like being exposed. Just, just, show the into- just show the tolerant person on the internet who's yelling at you that you're intolerant and not tolerating you that they're intolerant. Watch what happens. It's not pretty. When we're exposed... 
We don't like it. When suddenly somebody breaks into an internet site and lists of names of people who are seeking out affairs are suddenly published and husbands and wives are having really awkward and horrible conversations and marriages are being ruined because the light got exposed. Oh, those guys shouldn't have done that. No, no, it doesn't matter when we will find every excuse why we don't want our activities that are in the dark to be shown off. I mean, how many times have I had conversations with people over plastic surgery and I come down to it, I say, don't you think it's just vanity? No, it's not vanity. Gluttony. Abortion. We will justify ourselves like crazy. We don't want things we hold to to be exposed in the light. Not in my own heart. Not to the culture. And it says, people don't come because people don't want what they've hid in the dark to be exposed. But the warning is this, that Jesus said elsewhere in the book of Luke, look, there will be a day where it will be exposed. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is straightforward. He is unafraid to talk about these things because it's the center of what we're saved from. And he says, look, if you're not willingly going to step into the light, one day God will just pull out the, pull out the light and just aim it at you. On the day of judgment, there will be nothing to hide from. And so I encourage you to hear me that God knows already what we've done. He already knows our heart conditions. He already knows our destiny, and he rightly knows it. And when we can accept that reality, you can take a step forward. Because God, even if you're rejecting the light right now and fighting against him, John 3.16 still counts. God loves you so much that he sent his son for you. It's still the solution. That Jesus hasn't given up trying to get your attention. He still wants you to hear that he's willing to take your hell for you. Even if it's scary that you have to step into the light and confess the junk that you've done to the God who already knows. What would hold you back? What is so becoming and lovely in this world? That would hold you back from knowing the God who made this world. To see that he's loved you, even when you reject him, he loves you. It's not conditional. He's not sitting there going, I don't get anything out of you, so I don't love you anymore. No, he's loved you so much, even when you didn't love him, he gave you his son. That's what this passage is about. We're in a dangerous situation, and God's doing everything he can to get your attention to get you out of it. But what holds us back? What's in that darkness that you're unwilling to bring to the light? What is holding you in there? And I hope that you would hear me that it's now an opportunity to let it go, to give it over, to let it be exposed, and not receive condemnation. He didn't come to condemn. He came to give you forgiveness. Would you bow your heads with me? 
you're here today and you've not ever received what God has given, I want you to hear that God has given this as a gift. It's not a paycheck. You don't earn it. Get cleaned up first. No, there has to be a radical transformation that God gives you. That's through trusting what Jesus did. If you're ready to receive that and to be set free in the way that he's talking, I would give you a chance right now just to talk to God. Right where you're at, just tell him and confess. Walk into that light and let God expose those things and confess them to him. Then take that confession and and drop those sins behind you and ask God to pick them up and place them on the cross and Jesus is willing to bear them for you. Just ask him to do that for you. Then ask him to fill your life with that new life, that new transformed life that he spoke of and then to lead you through the rest of it as you trust that Jesus has taken that old sin away and given you that new life. Now, if any of you have been making that decision and you're starting to walk towards him, you're working through that prayer, I want to pray for you. And if that's you in this room right now, you made that decision to do that today, to accept what God has given you, just put your hand up. I want to pray over you at this point in the service. Just put it to a place where I can actually see it so I can know who I'm praying for. God, for those in this room who are making that decision, God, who are, who are determined that, hey, there is there's no other way out. I need you to save me. I pray that you would just bless them and give them your presence. Enable them to understand what they're doing and allow them to walk in that. God, for the rest of us, may it ignite our praise and may it ignite our efforts to bring that message to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.